Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, Dewalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome everybody to season two, episode 40 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. And today is going to be about associate equity, but not associate equity the way we typically talk about it, which is an earn-in structure. There's a lot of that in the history of the podcast, profits, interest, restricted stock, you know all the acronyms. Today, I'm actually gonna be talking about something slightly different, buy-ins. We don't talk about them that much. Could they be the right solution? Well, stay tuned. I'm gonna give you some things to think about as always. Brew a wonderful cup of that Mila coffee, get your pad and pen ready because you're gonna to wanna to take some notes. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everyone once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. Thank you so much for joining me on the show once again today. And I wanted to preface this episode because I'm not sure why this is, but you know, sometimes we get um, a deluge of questions around a particular subject matter. And I may not get the question for all of, I don't know, 11 months or something. And then for some reason, I get a rush of them at, at odd and random times, like the planets align or I don't know what it is, but there's something uh, interesting in, in a world such as ours when people start asking questions and there's like a similar train of thought. I haven't really been able to deduce why that happens, but it happens with um, some degree of frequency around different subject matters. And the subject matter for today uh, is what I might call uh, traditional associate buy-ins. So like I teased in the opening, we um, have built structures for group practices that tend to reflect um, the, the history that DeWalker and I have working in corporate America with, you know, earn-in structures for uh, the leadership, management level employees, high-performing employees, uh, the way to earn shares in a business without necessarily having to buy them. Uh, And it's a compelling strategy in a group practice context uh, because uh, a lot of associates are carrying a heavy amount of student loan debt, uh, and they may not want to take on more debt to buy into the business. So an earn-in methodology for a growing group can be really compelling and highly advantageous. And and it's arguably very problematic to try to do that in a solo practice endeavor. But there are situations where traditional buy-in methodologies are appropriate. Shame on us. We don't talk about them enough. They should be a tool in your toolbox. So I'm going to broach that subject today. And I'm probably going to do a little bit more of a compare and contrast type scenario in an upcoming episode to try to give you, you know, some frame of reference with this. So, so let's talk about traditional buy-ins, and I'm I'm going to define that better in just a second. But we want to start 
with a thought process around what are you trying to achieve? You know, I say you, I mean you as the business owner um, or founder, uh, the senior dentist. This could be um, in a solo context. It could be in a group context. And and I think there's, you know, a, a, a different sort of train of thought around traditional buy-ins. The first is in that traditional solo context, the traditional buy-in is a built-in transition plan, right? You are the founder. You are the 100% owner of that location. You've got an associate who's coming into the practice or has been in the practice for a while and proved their merit. You're going to sell them some amount of the business. And then you're in a, in a number of years, you're going to transition out. You're going to sell them the, the remaining balance of the business and they're going to be the new owner. Okay. That, I mean, without putting numbers to it or anything, that kind of methodology is probably pretty uh, familiar to everyone. It's a little bit different in a group practice context where you may be approaching um, your multi-location group and, and entertaining the prospects of selling uh, a chunk of each of the locations uh, to individual uh, dentists because you're trying to, to kind of secure, if you will, an anchor doctor for that location as you go through uh, building that group practice. Um, and, and that's a, the right mindset, arguably, to have um, because you feel like that person who buys into that location is going to be really vested um, in the outcome of that location, immediately vested, not a, a gradual vesting schedule in the context of an earn-in scenario. So I think there is uh, there's a lot of merit to that, uh, and it should be something that we that we continue to think through as being the right. Um, tool in the right circumstance. So, you know, what do we what do we think about as it relates to um, those practices and how do we how do we judge whether this might be the the correct methodology or not? The first context you want to sort of think through is what I would call like the practice life cycle. And a direct buy-in methodology can be appropriate for what I would call a mature business. So your, uh, the location uh, of consideration is, um, uh, is, is fully functioning. It's, all, it's built out um, existing revenues and patient flows, uh, a, a, a substantial amount of valuation from an EBITDA context. Um, and there's arguably maybe little further upside in terms of valuation improvement. You've kind of squeezed most of the juice out of this piece of fruit, and it is what I would call mature, all right? It could be that a direct buy-in could be uh, appropriate in that scenario because there's there's little further lift to be gained, and you can make a, an academic case that maybe it's close to its maximum level of valuation, uh, close to being maxed out, if you will. Um, that is not, the best methodology for a new practice um, or, or one that is uh, underperforming uh, because it would be a low valuation uh, calculation. And, and so that whoever's buying in is arguably buying in at a discount. But certainly in that life cycle for a mature business, it could be the right, right tool in the toolbox for you at the right point in time. So the second thing I would say is 
beyond what you want out of and the way you size up the the practice and the opportunity, you want to get clear on what the associate's expectations are. And when I say expectations, it runs the gamut. Um, this could be dollar amount, like what are they expecting to stroke the check for or or borrow the money for? You know, do they have a predefined dollar amount in mind? Some do. I would say most do not. They know they just want to be a partner, but some of them have a preconceived notion around, you know, not wanting to take on a loan for more than uh, X number of hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and that might be because of their existing uh, debt obligations. So probably want to get some clarity around, hey, Dr. Associate, uh, do you have uh, any expectations around the amount of money that you're going to borrow or, or how much the dollar value would be around buy-in? Along the same lines, do you have any expectations around the percentage amount? Um, some of them want to be 50-50 partners. Some want to buy in 25% and buy another 25% down the road. Um, but all of them sort of define that ownership percentage a little bit differently around preconceived notions as it relates to um, you know, control of the entity or um, job security, i.e. not being fired. We'll leave that for a different podcast, but you wanna sort of size up what their, their percentage expectations are. One sort of note here is that if you have somebody who buys in to an existing location um, and uh, they buy in for 20% or more, uh, they are going to be uh, responsible for personally guaranteeing uh, any business level debt beyond their own personal guarantee on the buy-in loan. So banks look at ownership structures. Some are north of 10%. All are north of 20% in terms of uh, being uh, obligated to be personal guarantee uh, from the associate context if the debt lives at a practice level. That's kind of a side note, but just something to consider in terms of your, uh, your conversation purposes. Uh, much like the associate's expectations, you want to get some clarity on, you want to think through what some of your expectations are too. Uh, first and foremost, I, I would think at least, is the aspect of control of the practice. Uh, you know, we talked a lot about control and operating agreements from a uh, a day-to-day decision-making, mean, meaning being the managing member, um, or a simple majority vote, uh, which is 51%, uh, and supermajority vote, which has to be defined in the operating agreement. Uh, what are the criteria around decisions to be made that that require simple majority or supermajority, um, and and sort of your control of that entity, even though you're not the outright owner. Um, the other piece from your perspective to really think through and to get clarity on uh, is the use of proceeds from their buy-in. So they're going to go to the bank most most times, at least, and they're going to borrow a couple of hundred thousand dollars. They're going to buy into your, your business. Uh, you're going to be the recipient of that couple of hundred thousand dollars. They're going to be your whatever percentage partner is in that location. And now you have a chunk of cash on your hands. So what do you want to do with it? Do you want to take it out of the business and use it for personal investment to kind of, um, you know, to sort of uh, diversify your investment portfolio and, and minimize or mitigate around some risks, maybe? Um, do you want to keep it in the business as a growth vehicle to 
um, use for CapEx or to, to build another location or buy another location. You know, so it's a growth component. Are you trying to replenish cash on balance sheet uh, with the proceeds of that buy-in? You know, how do you want to use, and obviously solve for the tax implication too, that goes without saying, but how do you want to use the proceeds of the, the buy-in? You want to think through that. And as you're thinking through that, here is a, a red flag for you. You have to look to the covenant structures of your existing loan, because if you have existing debt on the business or on that practice, you may be obligated by the, the original issuing bank to use the proceeds of the buy-in to pay down remaining principal on the loan. So there are people in our industry who talk about becoming your own bank. Uh, they talk about uh, self-funding your own uh, growth. They talk about allowing associates to buy in and for the whatever dollar amount of their buy-in, using the proceeds of that loan or that buy-in amount to, to buy or build another location. And, and that can all be fine and good. However, the assumption that they're not telling you is that you have no existing debt on the business or that the existing debt on the business does not require the payment against principal for any proceeds of a material buy-in. You have to absolutely get clear on that before you do anything with the cash. Okay. So I can't stress that enough. It's a, it's a stop point to, to find out what your obligations are. If you have no debt on the business, then it doesn't matter. If you do have debt, you got to get clarity around, you know, what you can use the proceeds for. Uh, the next piece is thinking through and getting clarity around, you know, why does the associate uh, want to buy in and what are they hoping to achieve with it? This is sort of a mindset question. And it can be that they want a seat at the table. They want to influence the direction of the practice. Um, they, they want some input around decision making. That's normal. That's no different than, uh, you know, a buy-in methodology that we've talked about. It could be that they want access to profit distributions. So they want to diversify their own income streams around just the clinical compensation rate that you're paying them. That would be normal as, as well. I would tell you on that, if their expectation is to access distributions before they buy in would be the time to have the conversation with them about how you govern the business and how you use leftover profit, i.e. distributions, for the potential growth of the business. If the associate is expecting to buy in and is expecting to get pro rata uh, their percentage of all available distributions, but your process around growing the business is to say, hey, we, we may generate you know, $100,000 worth of distrib distributable, distributable, easy for me to say, distributable profit out of this location, but I'm not going to distribute 100% of the $100,000. I'm going to, I'm going to use some amount to keep cash on balance sheet, build a rainy day fund, the fallback position. I'm going to keep some amount for potential growth in terms of either CapEx or, or acquiring other practices or building out part of the location or something like that. And I'm going to distribute what's left over. Well, that's a different decision-making process than somebody that says, hey, I can't wait to get you know full access to distributions based on my ownership percentage. You don't want income expectations around ownership 
to to immediately create a hurdle for you and put you at odds with your new partner. So talking through profit distributions, how you want to use them and what their expectations are, if they have any, is really important. And you want to have that conversation before they buy in. Um, the security aspect, I teased this earlier, maybe they want to one of the things they want to get in terms of achieving out of the buy-in is some level of security. Well, when you're an owner, you 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 definitely do have that, but it doesn't mean that you can't fire them or that you can't you know um, terminate them from their ownership position. Quite the contrary, you can, uh, and that'll we would have to revert back to the operating agreement for cause versus not for cause. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't dispel their notion right away, but, you know, outright security of never being fired because you own part of the business is a fallacy. All right. And then the other thing that all too often they have expectations on, and this is, I'll tell you, this is rampant in the industry. And we see this a lot with our associate equity models is that the associate believes that once they become an owner, they have the ability, uh, to take what you might call owner benefit, uh, in the business. And what owner benefit means is that they can run their personal expenses through the business. Maybe you're doing that currently. If you're going to bring in uh, minority partners, you probably want to clean that up, you know, note to self on that. Um, but the idea is that, you know, if their expectation is they can run their car payment through the business or, you know, they can um, run their dry cleaning bill or they can employ their spouse or their kids or something like that because they see you doing it or because they see a colleague doing it in a different business that he or she may own, that owner benefit can once again create a lot of friction. The way to solve for that is typically through personal LLCs that own the interest in the business. We can talk about that a little bit later on in a different episode, but suffice to say, this is something that you want to you want to address and clean up because it um, uh, might create some level of disillusionment after they end up buying in. Um, as you're building a business, uh, a multi-location business, as almost all of you are, um, you know, you're going to have multiple locations when you have minority partners buying into only an individual location, it stands to reason that, um, the value of that location that they're buying in at, um, is, is going to be capped at some level of valuation because a, a, a solo practice, as most of you remember, is only going to value between three to five times EBITDA in our world. Whereas if you are taking the risk to build, I don't know, a 10 location group, let's say, you know, the value of that business from an EBITDA multiple standpoint, is probably going to be a little bit greater or potentially a lot greater based on the overall value uh, of the EBITDA dollars being generated. So this is the, when we talk, when you start talking about the discrepancy or the difference between practice level valuation at a three to five times EBITDA multiple and group practice valuation, which could be six or eight or 10 or more, that discrepancy in valuation multiple is a principle called arbitrage. And, and you want to understand that because as the person taking the risk to build the business, you want to kind of quantify this for yourself um, because the value of the aggregate business, the consolidated business, is going to be greater from a valuation multiple than their interest at a practice level. And those additional EBITDA dollars work to your advantage in valuation methodology the next piece would be to think through um, whether or not, if you decide to sell the business, whether that 
premium in valuation multiple that would be achieved by the group practice would flow through and benefit your minority partner at a practice level. You can do it either way, yes or no. It flows through or it it's capped at a certain amount, meaning it doesn't flow through. And you want to think about the value of your holdings uh, in the, the overall business with the appropriate valuation methodology. So principle of, of arbitrage has a huge impact on size and scale, uh, as we talked about before. But as you're thinking about a, an associate buy-in at a practice level, that's something that you you want to uh, you want to be forward thinking about is probably the best way of putting it. So, a couple of maybe best practices to keep in mind um, in this context. Um, historically, uh, and we still see a lot, I would say, is associate buy-ins at a practice level because they're they're they look and feel traditional you see a lot of the value or valuation of the practice being done using traditional methodologies that's discounted cash flow percentage of revenue asset value all of that kind of stuff that's fine if we're talking about a solo practice in and of itself um, and not that the practice in question is part of a larger group if it's a solo practice you can make a lot of case uh, that you know maybe DCF or, or asset value is, is the right methodology to use. I'm not really qualified to say on on which is is the best mes- methodology there. But what I would tell you is that if you're building a group, you and I both know that a group practice is going to be valued as a multiple of EBITDA. All right, that should be commonplace to everybody in their vernacular. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast once or or for the 100 episodes or however many we have out there, if you're going to build a group that's valued as a multiple of EBITDA, you absolutely should use the same valuation at a practice level. So first course of best practice is don't rely on dueling valuation methodologies because you're selling an interest at a practice level. It, it should be multiple of EBITDA for the consolidated entity. And it should be multiple of EBITDA for the practice entity. The only discrepancy might be in terms of that uh, maximum valuation uh, multiple at a at a practice level versus at a um, a consolidated level. Okay, but EBITDA based valuation for uh, your uh, purposes here is absolutely um, the right uh, the, the right methodology to use. Um, the next thing is. Well, okay, how much? Meaning like in terms of percentage, how much do we want to allow them to buy in? And our opinion at a practice level here is allowing them to buy somewhere between 20 to 40%. Why is that? Well, it goes back to that control provision that I mentioned before from your perspective, the ability to maintain control. 20 to 40% for a mature practice that's part of an overall group, that practice is probably going to value pretty highly. So there's also the 20 to 40%. What does that equate to in terms of the dollar amount of the loan and the dollar amount of the buy-in? So we're, t- we're probably talking about a, a pretty decent sized buy-in dollar figure for the associate, but somewhere between 20 to 40%. 20% gives them skin in the game. It gives them the obligation around personal guarantee, like I mentioned before. Maximum of 40%. 
arguably gives you a lot of uh, buffer around voting control, at least at a um, uh, at a, a simple majority aspect. And then obviously uh, as the the day to day managing member of the business. So there, it maintains your level of voting control, but it gives them a big enough stake and, and enough skin in the game to, to make it worth their while to do it. Um, and then the last thing I would say in terms of best practices is what I mentioned before around distributions. Discuss their income expectations up front. I mean, we can talk about voting control. We can talk about seat at the table. You can talk about job security, all that other kind of stuff. But really, you're building a bigger business that arguably has greater merit around the value uh, and valuation of the business for wealth changing purposes if there's if their intent is to derive more income that can put you at odds with them so discussing what their income expectations as a partner would be going forward is is really critically important so those are just some some odds and ends around best practices and i touched on earlier you know if they're wanting to do something around owner benefit you're probably going to want them to set up their own LLC versus buying into the practice directly. And and their own LLC, I don't want to get too wonky because this can be a little bit confusing in a podcast, but having your own LL, having insisting that they have their own LLC to own the interest in the practice allows them uh, two things. One, their own LLC would hold the debt on the business. Yeah, you probably end up with some level of uh, corporate guarantor, but still it keeps it cleaner that their LLC owns the debt that owns the interest in the practice. But the other thing is their own LLC, they can run their own payroll out of there if they want to employ their spouse and kids or run their car payment through there or ticket to the tickets to the pro sports team or, or anything else. They've got full liberty and discretion to do that. It doesn't impact you and it keeps things really clean. For what it's worth, this is the way DeWalker and I have Polaris set up. He has his own LLC. I have my own LLC. We can run our own expenses and, and do whatever we want in those LLCs. But the, each of our LLCs owns our interest in Polaris. Uh, and it just keeps things a little bit cleaner. It, it, it minimizes one more point of friction around partnership dynamics for what it's worth. So I share that you know, in an interest of, of trying to, to give some clarity around some of those structures, at least verbally. So the last thing I would tell you as we kind of wrap up this uh uh, this episode, when you're when you're entertaining traditional buy-in methodologies, you always want to think about this sort of stuff in the context of is it part of a larger overall growth-oriented strategy? And if it is, there there's certainly a lot of different um, aspects or boxes to check. There's the capital structure and covenants, you know, the, the debt capital structure and covenants. They're the in, entity structures themselves, you know, personal LLCs, practice level, management company, DSO, and, and things like that. So there's a lot in terms of legal agreements that you still got to get straight here. There's the operating agreement and how we govern the business overall or at a practice level. Uh, you want to think through the remaining uh, uh upside in terms of goodwill or is it um you know uh, uh fully mature in terms of practice and and what's the future growth potential of it uh and then certainly the control provisions for this particular practice and the overall business as the two are kind of intertwined 
And the last piece I would say in terms of that overall strategy is what I've touched on twice, which is the use of profit. Are we going to distribute it or are we going to reinvest it? Uh, And if you can solve for all of that, you've probably taken care of a lot of the friction points around bringing in a minority partner at a practice level that is still congruent with your overall growth strategy of the group practice. So I know this was a a lot today. It it always is. I mean, that's what y'all pay us for, right? (laughs) So, um, but hopefully, you know, based around a lot of the questions we've gotten recently, um, uh, you know, in terms of traditional buy-in questions and buy-in methodology, and we've done a few of these recently, hopefully this gives you something to think about um, uh, because it could be the right solution or a different solution in your toolbox. And that's important. So hopefully you got a lot out of that. Um, stick around. I've got a couple of additional thoughts before we wrap up the show. So thanks, everybody, once again, for joining me on the show today. I I hope you found uh, traditional buy-in methodologies to be educational and maybe a a different look to things than uh, than we normally um, have talked about. Um, I wanted to talk real briefly or or welcome a new Polaris employee to our team, and that's Kyle Cremati. Kyle uh, comes to us uh, with an extensive banking background, as many on our data and analytics team do. Uh, He is um, uh, an associate with us and is going to be, once again, an an integral and instrumental member of our data and analytics team. He's already started doing some client work and some modeling work. He's incredibly sharp. And as you all know, a lot of what we do is is analytically driven and the guidance we give people um, or the solutions we build and the guidance we give is typically driven from an analytical context, at least in the early stages. So Kyle will be a another uh, soon to be familiar face to everybody uh, as uh, he comes up to speed and and starts doing more client level work. But we are certainly um, really thrilled about having him on our team. By the time this episode drops, uh, which will probably be around, uh, I would say, October 4th, um, sometime that week of the 3rd, I would say, we will probably be in Denver for Scaling from Clinician to CEO. Uh, We are super excited about that conference. Um, And uh, I think a lot of the content that we're going to be sharing uh, is going to be new content, but uh, make a a tremendous impact and and be what the audience would, um, would expect out of it. All of that being said, as you can well imagine, it is a massive heavy lift <laughs> to pull off a conference of, of this size and magnitude, especially when it's not in your hometown and Denver is not Charlotte. So, of course, to make it more challenging on ourselves, we would have to pick a location that was two times aw- time zones away from Charlotte, North Carolina. The conference like this uh, and the way it comes together has a million details. And there are a lot of people who are responsible for executing on those details. But two that I want to recognize publicly, or at least in our podcast, are Mike Dombrowski and Kay Lang. 
K is um, the uh, Swiss Army knife, if you will, of the Dental Success Institute team, works very closely with Dr. Mark Costas and is really the, the conductor over there. Uh, and she has put forth a ton of work and given us a ton of guidance to make this thing be successful. They obviously do a lot of um, uh, enterprise level uh, summits like this, and, and it's second nature to her, but this is our first one uh, in the new company and certainly the first one with DSI, and it wouldn't have come together nearly as smoothly without Kay. So I wanted to just say from all of us at Polaris uh, to Kay and the members of the, the DSI team, uh, our, our sincere gratitude and thanks for all their hard work. Mike Dombrowski is our brand manager and digital marketing coordinator here uh, at Polaris. And uh, he is uh, sort of a Swiss Army knife in the marketing department and, and is responsible for a lot of just the granular level of execution, the details and everything that you all see that's public facing. Mike has a hand in almost all of it. And certainly this event uh, has really fallen on his shoulders um, to make it be a success. We're not out at uh, Denver yet, and we haven't hosted the conference yet as I'm recording this, but I'm really confident that uh, all the details that he's checked and, and everything we've got going on are going to be a massive success and, and really appreciate Mike, his stewardship, his leadership, and, and all the commitment and time um, uh, to, to sweat the details and make this be a conference that um, uh, our prospective client base would expect out of us. And, and I know it's going to go great. And I really thank him uh, on a personal level from the team here at Polaris. The last person I wanted to recognize uh, is Riley Hamlin. Riley will also be with us in Denver. Our entire, almost our entire team will. Uh, and Riley is our graphic designer. So you see a lot of what she does, you know, in social media posts and, and everything like that. Uh, everything that looks pretty at Polaris, she really has a hand in. Let's put it that way. And over the last probably eight weeks or more, uh, she has been very instrumental to me in terms of building the presentations and the content that we built for Dent Supply Serona World in Vegas a couple of weeks ago, as well as scaling from clinician to CEO. And Riley is a genius at uh, presentations and aesthetically um, what she does is second to none. Uh, and I'm really thrilled to have her on our team. I could not have done this without her. Um, I might have been able to dream up the presentations, which I did, but there's no way in heck I could have gotten them to, to come together the way she has. So really appreciative to, to Riley and thanks so much for all of her hard work and making us look good from the stage. So I look forward to seeing a lot of familiar faces out there and a lot of new faces for us. And, and for those that are in the audience who are going to be um, in, uh, in Denver next week with us. You may be listening to this podcast on the way to the uh, Sheraton in downtown Denver, and I look forward to meeting you in person. So thanks once again for everybody for joining me on the show today, uh, for being in the audience, for all the five-star ratings and reviews you've given us on the podcast and the accolades you give to us in terms of the subject matter we share for the audience. I really appreciate you being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.